And I'd like to, can everyone hear me okay? How's the sound? Is it all right? I'm, I'm, can you hear me back there? Yes? Maso menos, or? about now? Is this any better or up or good? Good. Okay. Okay, great. We'll give it a try. Thanks. Thank you. Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections uh, about this theme of our retreat, uh, emptiness, take a step further. And as Guy, as Gil shared with us last night, there's so many different ways of understanding emptiness and many ways to, to connect it to our practice. And what I appreciated about last night was, was the importance of keeping it practical, keeping it grounded in something that's relevant for our lives. And then this morning, uh, Don introduced us to this important component of, of emptiness, this uh, teaching on anicca, impermanence. And then this afternoon, we got to have a, get a feeling sense of that through the, the exercise that Gil took us through. And tonight, what I'd like to do is share with you some reflections on this intersection of emptiness and dependent origination. Or maybe understanding more precisely how emptiness in many ways is dependent origination. And dependent origination is an expression of emptiness. So what I'd like to do is, is to begin with uh, just getting a sense of how to understand dependent origination, what it is, and hopefully within that description, you're gonna hear, I hope, we'll see what happens, <laughs> these resonances with uh, these teachings on emptiness. And I'd like to begin just with a, hopefully an analogy that can help us get a feeling sense for uh, this teaching of dependent origination. You could say, in a past life of mine, I briefly played clarinet in a jazz band. It was so much fun. <laughs> it was a blast. And I remember one of the foundational things I learned to help me get started was learning the structure of uh, many blues and rock and roll songs, namely the 12-bar the blues. And those of you who know music are really probably quite familiar with this chord progression which is a pretty standard chord pro uh, progression. And it consists of the one chord, the four chord, and the five chord of any given key. And it unfolds in a particular way over those 12 bars. And once I could hear that chord progression when I was listening to songs and getting a feeling sense, it, what started to happen is other chord progressions that I was being exposed to in jazz, I could hear much more clearly and it made it uh, so much easier to get a feeling of what it meant to improvise, just to have that basis of this foundational basis of hearing this underlying structure of all the music. 
and to really feel it, feeling the flow of the songs that we were playing, once I could hear this underlying structure of, of these chord progressions. It was like, instead of listening to music in a superficial way, I learned how to listen more deeply, like, like in a, a more embodied way. And I feel like the teaching of dependent origination cultivates something similar for me. It's like when I get to get a sense of it, I, I, I start to get a feeling sense of the underlying structure of so much of the Buddha's teachings. And more importantly, it gives me a feeling sense of the underlying structure of experience itself. And I'd like to just start with a simple description of this teaching of dependent origination and to keep it simple as a way to, to enter into it. And it can be described in these four simple sentences, which go, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. Here the Buddha gives us this simple description of dependent origination, of conditionality. This is, this is such a, a basic understanding of how conditions work. Right? So for example, maybe in gardening. I love gardening for this this world of conditionality. You have a seed for a tomato plant. And you plant that seed. And you need all of these other conditions around it. The soil, the right nutrients in the soil, the, the water, the moisture, the sunlight. And when all of these conditions arise together, you have the arising of a tomato plant. Right? When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that, that tomato plant. And you take away one of those conditions. You forget to water your tomato plant. <laughs> and then, voila, there's a cessation of this comes the cessation of that. It's this really simple understanding of how conditions give rise to other conditions. And we take away some conditions and other conditions fall away. So this is the, the definition that I want to use for, for dependent origination. And right here, we're going to have the equating to emptiness. So in one of these quotes in your study guide, it's the quote number 18. This comes from Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna, I see, at least from my vision, is kind of the, the great Theravada commentator of, uh, of emptiness that, that really shares so much of, with us about emptiness. The translation from Stephen Batchelor, and he says, contingency, this is Stephen Batchelor's way of defining or, or translating uh, dependent origination, is emptiness. So dependent origination is emptiness, which contingently configured is the middle way. This is the middle way of understanding the unfolding of experience. Everything is contingent. Everything is conditioned. And if everything is conditioned, it means everything is empty. 
This is what we want to understand. How when something's dependently arisen, it means that it's empty, that that would be the description of it. So just this simple sense of conditionality, these four simple lines, like my example of the tomato plant. There are so many different iterations of this that you find in these early Buddhist texts. Hopefully all of you are familiar with these 12 links of dependent, or, dependent origination. And I want to point out, it's, it's kind of like the, the 12 links gets the most airplay in our communities. But there's so many different iterations of dependent origination. Sometimes you have these iterations where there's 12 links to the unfolding of these conditions. Nine links, or the 11 links of the transcendental origination. Sometimes six links. Or even when we look at the Four Noble Truths, right? It's just about conditions. Oh, when there's the arising of craving, oh, there's, there's the arising of suffering. And guess what? When that ceases, suffering ceases. And then there are these conditions that can start to be cultivated or arise, the fourth noble truth, that leads to that cessation. It's all in the language of conditionality. We find it all over the place. Or something like the seven factors of awakening. What is that a list of? Oh, that's what you want in the soil if you want awakening to grow. Just, it's just a recipe for how to keep, take care of your, your awakening plants. It's that simple. So this is the first understanding of dependent origination. We're going to come back to this. Namely, things are interwoven together. Or things interdependently arise. When this is, that is. When this isn't, that isn't. Another way to understand this is to get a sense of the opposite. So what's the opposite of interdependence? Independence. We have interdependence, and independence would be the opposite of interdependence. So I want to give an example of independence, and then juxtapose it. So, for example, you come here on retreat, and then you walk down to the dining hall and you get a cup from, for some water, maybe during lunch or during breakfast. And then you accidentally drop it. And then you feel embarrassed about that. And then you walk mindfully back to your room and you feel even more embarrassed. You take a nap and then you go to the meditation hall. You hear a loud sound in the meditation hall. And then you judge that person for breaking the silence. That's the story of an independent being. I, I'm this independent being that moves about in the world. I move down to the dining hall. I move into my room. I walk over here to the hall. But it's really the same person. Here I am. Right? I'm, I'm affected by the world. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that's affected by dropping the, the cup because that was me that did it down there. And then I carry that back to my room kind of defines who I am. I'm, I'm the one who's embarrassed about that. Or I'm the one who's so irritated about noises in the meditation hall. And I'm the same person. That's 
most of the time how I describe my experience to myself. There's this independent static thing called me. Can you relate to this? I hope you can. <laughs> it's a pretty basic way that we often understand our experience. And when I point out that this is the, the framework of independence, I want to point out that it's a, it's a really helpful frame. Like if you come into the individual group practice discussions, it's helpful for us when you use this frame of I'm an independent person and these are the things. It's just helpful for language and how we communicate. So there is a place for this. For example, uh, so when I was in the Zen tradition, one of the my fellow practitioners, he lived in a, a commune where you couldn't use the word I, so you couldn't say I or me or mine while you're living there, and you couldn't use the word no. And he said, you know, it was interesting, there was a lot of drugs involved, but not a lot of wisdom. <laughs> he said it was a nightmare, actually. So I'm not suggesting that we go in that direction. <laughs> and the invitation that I find with, with practice is rather than having this basis of independence and understanding the unfolding experience from that, that there's some kind of independent thing called me moving around in the world and having relationships with other things. Can you make this turn and seeing that what's primary, what's the underlying structure that I want to start to get a feeling for, that I want to hear, just like that chord pro progression, is interactions, is how things arise together and cease. You might know the, the, the late Eugene Gendlin. He uh, started this uh, way of kind of internal inquiry called focusing and also uh, wrote a lot of philosophy. And he would talk often about interactions first. That's what experience is about when we get a sense of it is interactions first, first and then what arises out of that are things. We make things, but what's primary is this interactions. And this is so difficult to talk about because we have a language that's filled with nouns. And we put these nouns before processes so it feels like that what's primary are things, are nouns. But that's just the trick of language. So we, we get conditioned by language and then we see the world that way. And we're looking to, to feel into experience differently, more deeply. Just like when you're listening to music, can you hear the underlying chord progression? It's the same song, but when you hear it on that level, wow, so, something different begins to pop out. So can you hear this quality of interdependence? Can you get a, a feeling for it, feeling the flow of experience? in this manner. And to me, this is what retreat's all about, slowing down, being present to hear and feel on this level. And I want to point out how simple this can be, because it can really be quite simple. Like just 
the simple experience. What's going on in that experience right now? So one way of understanding it is the more superficial way. Well, here I am. What are you talking about, Brian? I'm just sitting here hearing the bell when you strike it. What's another way to get a sense of that? What's arising with this? And one way this is broken down in Theravada is that, that there's a coming together of these processes, right? When, when, I, when there's the ringing of the bell, there's the process of that. There's the process of knowing that's happening. And that knowing is mixed with this whole activity with hearing. There's a, there's a, a sense organ of hearing, that the activity of that coming together with a sound and all these processes come together to create the sense of, oh, here I am hearing the sound. But it's mostly just the knowing of the sound and the sound. And maybe you can get a feeling sense of that it's just these processes interacting. You have a sense of the knowing. Do you have a sense of the sound? We're just talking about a small shift. But can you feel the shift in what it does to the quality of attention when you start to feel processes rather than things? It's small. It's a subtle shift. And there might be other processes being noticed in this. Sound, there's knowing. There might be this process that it has this ongoing flavor of it being pleasant or unpleasant. But even that you might notice is, is a process. It might undulate. This is why it's so important to have this exposure to anicca before this. And then, of course, there's also the complication that we bring to it. Mm, wow, I want some more of that which is a process, right? Can you feel that? Mm, yeah, ooh. Or eh, no thanks. <laughs> Maybe just kind of the process of being checked out. <laughs> what is it like to enter that world, the whole vibrant world of processes, of relationships, just like with the sound of the bell? Not, you can't find the same person in there, can you? There's not some kind of independent static thing called me. Can you make the shift? Listening more deeply, hearing that underlying structure of interactions first. This is one understanding of emptiness. Empty of what? So empty in terms of a description like the a glass is empty. So what is 
experience empty of when we have this first understanding of dependent origination? You could say thingness. We're, we're stepping out of the world of things. Oh, th there's no longer static things here. I thought there were static things within experience. But when I examine just the, the, the activity of, of hearing, the sound of the bell, oh, there's no things there. Of course, they, 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 they say it more eloquently than I do. You know, there's a lack of self-inherent existence, whatever that means. What it means to me is, oh, th th there just isn't nouns the way I was taught in school. They lied to me. <laughs> it's just processes. This is the movement, right? From independence to interdependence. From nouns to verbs. From things to processes. This is the shift into getting a feeling sense of emptiness or of dependent origination. Can you hear it? Can you, can you feel it like you would listening to the chord progressions underneath a jazz tune. So our first understanding of dependent origination, independence to interdependence, nouns to verbs, things the processes. And now this second understanding of dependent origination that I want to share with you, which is that the Buddha was interested in conditionality in a very specific domain. And that's the domain of suffering and the end of suffering. This is what it's all about. As you know, this is what he said. I only taught these two things, only teach these two things, suffering and the end of suffering. So now it's bringing this understanding of interdependence, of dependent origination, of interdependence, not independence, in this context of, of suffering, of dukkha. And I think one way to get a, a feeling sense of this is the emptiness of people or fixed people or fixed entities. Because so it's in that place where I can really get a sense of how, how my mind creates dukkha when I don't understand this teaching of emptiness or I don't understand this teaching of dependent origination. Remember... My partner and I had gone over to uh, the house of some of our friends, and they had two kids. They were in their younger years then. Had a great time, and when we were walking back, we were talking about the kids, and we were like, oh yeah, you know, the, the younger one is so shy. You know, he's just so shy around people. You know, you know how cute it is when... <laughs> Kids are shy like that, and and uh, whereas the older one just seems so extroverted, you know, bouncing around, always liking to connect with people, and in that conversation, I think we began to notice, oh, the harm that could happen if we were to see both of these 
kids only in those boxes. And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe when family or friends have, or have done that to you, they've pegged you about who you are. And then what happens? That's how I begin to see people. What gets reinforced is when the child is shy, it's like, oh, oh, they're, they're, they're the shy one. Of course they're that way. And the older one is extroverted. Oh, there she is again. And then if the older one gets shy, it's like, oh, well, that's unusual. That's a little strange. Was she, was she being influenced by her sibling? And what's up with the younger one being so extroverted tonight? It's never like that. It, it colors how I perceive other people. I fix them in some kind of way. There's a, there's a pain to that. They're no longer free-flowing processes that are moving and changing and undulating. All of a sudden, my mind feels like they have a fixed personality. And I want to be really clear because there's been so much science around personality and many of you probably know, especially the more recent studies of personality have shown how fluid it is. We have so many ideas that personality is really fixed. But in terms of studies across you know, the lifespan of an individual, it just isn't true. Change happens. Isn't it amazing that they find that we change? <laughs> and then everybody ends up being so surprised. Oh my God, it's true. You mean, you mean I'm not the same person? So yeah, we do this to others and we do this to our, ourselves. And it can feel so relieving when we drop that. Don't you think? When we can drop the creation of making people into fixed entities, whether it be ourselves or others. There's a poem uh, by the poet Danusha Lamaris that I think expresses this so well. It's, it's entitled Fictional Characters. And I want to give a little bit of the background of some of the things she's referencing, just to give you more of a sense. But she's uh, speaking about characters in uh, works of fictions, like, like she mentions Holden Caulfield, who uh, some of you probably know from Catcher in the Rye, uh, a book by J.D. Selinger, or Anna Karenina, you know, the, the great novel by Tolstoy, or Hector from uh, Il uh, Homer's Iliad. So just to reveal some of these references. This is what she says. She begins... Do they ever want to escape? Climb out of the curved white pages and enter our world? Holden Caulfield slipping in the slide door of the, the side door of the movie theater to catch the two o'clock. Anna Karenina sitting in the local diner reading the paper as the waitress in a bright green uniform serves up a cheeseburger and a Coke. Even Hector, on break from the Iliad, takes a stroll through the park, admires a fresh bed of tulips. Who knows, maybe they were growing tired of the author's mind, 
all its twists and turns, and they were finally weary of stumbling around Pamplona, a bottle in each fist, eating lotuses on the banks of the Nile. Perhaps it was just too hot in the small California town where they'd been written into a lifetime of plowing fields. Whatever the reason, here they are, content to spend the day roaming the city streets, rain falling on their phantasmal shoulders, enjoying the bustle of the crowd. Wouldn't you, if you could, step out of your own story to lean for an afternoon against the doorway of the five and dime, sipping your coffee, your life somewhere far behind you, all its heat and toil, nothing but a tale resting in the hands of a stranger. The dingy sidewalk ahead, wet and glistening. Wouldn't it be great to step out of all those oppressive stories? All the conceptualizations of who you are that feel more like a weight rather than something that's freeing. It's those specific stories that I'm talking about. When you've seen the judging mind 2,000 times, and then there's that small story, man, I'm, I'm such a judgmental person. And there it is, can you feel the grip of that? Oh, it adds to the dukkha. I'm so filled with self-hatred. I'm so great. I'm such a failure. I'm not enough. I'm good at this. I'm bad at this. When I get hooked by these stories, when I get lost in the grip, there's suffering, isn't there? It's oppressive. And we do this to others, as I mentioned. It can be so freeing to step out of that. I remember hearing a story of uh, a nun in the Thai forest tradition was uh, going to be going back home to visit her parents and uh, she was sharing this with her teacher Ajahn Samedo and she was concerned about it because it, it was very difficult for her to go home because when she went home her father demanded that she always wear a hat because he couldn't stand seeing her shaved head and a challenging situation and Ajahn Samedo gave a uh, gave her this suggestion, just three words for going home. He said, don't create him. That's it. 
Go home, but don't create him before you get there. Sometimes a different way to work with challenges. Tough teaching for me sometimes. Because sometimes there is a place for it. I want to normalize that. Sometimes that's how I want to protect myself is I want, I want to create the person. Because sometimes I feel like that's where I'm going to find some safety. There's a place for safety. Don't get me wrong around that. But what's it like to go into these situations not creating that person? What can arise from that? This understanding of emptiness, this understanding of dependent origination. That there's not a fixed entity there. Feeling the flow of experience, like hearing the chord progression under a jazz tune. This is our practice to notice how the mind creates others and ourselves. Verbs instead of nouns, processes instead of things. And that there's a, a key, some key processes to be sensitive to, which again, I think many of you are familiar with, especially in the kind of classical unfolding of dependent origination, these key conditions of Contact, right? Contact being, you know, the moment when uh, there's a moment of knowing some kind of sense object, like a sound. So it's sometimes divided up in this way when there's a contact, like a sense contact of that. There's the knowing. There's a sound. And then there's a, a sense organ, right? The ear. And when those come together, ah, oh, then you have, you have contact, and when there's that condition, then you have the condition of Vedna, right? You, you have contact of some sense. And it's going to have one of these three flavors. It's either going to be pleasant or unpleasant. And I love this about the third one. Well, it doesn't seem like it's pleasant. Or it doesn't seem like it's unpleasant. Well, then it's neither of those. Which is nice. Aduka masuka. I love that poly word. It has a nice rhyme to it. It's neither dukkha, it's neither unpleasant, and it's not sukha either. It's not pleasant either. And then it's there that there can be the grip, the craving, the clinging, the aversion. To notice that, the interdependent quality of that rather than some kind of independent story. So maybe one story about this. This happened here at Spirit Rock in this hall. I was sitting right over there somewhere. And it was in the the kind of the middle to uh, uh, of the retreat. And, and the mind was in such a sweet space, which you know can be so dangerous. Just a lot of samadhi and mindfulness. And I was extending my sits into the walking meditation. And... Uh, as I was extending them in, what would happen is uh, there would be the hearing of the end of the, the sit with the bell. I'd be sitting there. And then I'd hear, it felt like it was, these, these sounds, it felt like they were almost in my lap. And I heard this kind of 
kind of this body moving right in front of me and these kind of these subtle groans of like, ah, mm. and this, this movement of the body. And it just felt so close to me. And hearing these sounds as I was sitting there was, well, I didn't like it. I'll just say that. <laughs> Let's put it lightly. I was bummed out. I mean, I was in this sweet space and this noise started to arise right there and it felt so close, like it was in my lap. And then I opened up my eyes and it almost really was in my lap. There was somebody's head just like, it was just a, like a, felt like just a few inches in front of my cushion that was doing this um, twisting motion with their body. So this went on for quite a while, you know, for over a few days. Um, boy, did I get hooked. I was just so irritated. And often when I get irritated in this way, I feel so right. That's when it gets dangerous, right? I felt so right, like this was not supposed to be going on in the meditation hall. This isn't what's supposed to be going down here. So it was like that impulse of like, I wanted to just say something to the person because I felt like that was the kind thing to do. <laughs> you know that hook? <laughs> the hook of feeling right and feeling self-righteous and then it takes the masquerade of kindness. Or I got I to tell the managers right now. <laughs> and so often in these situations, I have to say to myself, Brian, do you want to be right or do you want to be free? <laughs> and then I have to slow down. And this is such an important piece around this thing. Because so often, probably you've, you've, people have heard me talk about this because this is so much an important part of my process, is, is I do need to take a step back. Sometimes I need to say to myself, you know, Something like, you know, Brian, here you are, you know, it, it's like you're you're having an emotional breakdown because somebody's moving their body in front of you. <laughs> like, you might want to take a look at that. Like, this is what the practice is about. <laughs> just just a suggestion. <laughs> and then there there needs to be the, yes, this too is my practice. That's That's the turn. Boy, if I can get to the yes then everything changes. This is such a big piece of my, my life is getting to the yes, this too is my practice. Because that's the biggest problem in my life is there's things that feel like they're disrupting my practice. And then when it's, oh yes, this is, this is the gateway. And then it was just this simple practice. It's just noticing what's there. It's noticing in this lens of interdependence. Oh, there's hearing. Oh, that's an activity, hearing. Oh, and it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. Oh, and there's a sight that's unpleasant. Oh, and, and there's the dukkha. There's the being in contention with experience. It shouldn't be this way. Oh, here are these processes. Oh, when this arises, that arises. Oh, when, when, there's, when there's the being hooked, there's dukkha. There it is. And all that's needed is just seeing that, the seeing that frees. And it's not like the, the annoyance went away, but there was space around it. And when there was space around it, the heart could soften. And when there was, my heart could soften, there was actually a place in my heart for that person. 
because I wasn't creating them anymore. It was like this intimacy, a spiritual intimacy. This is going from independence to interdependence, from nouns to verbs, from things to processes. So important. This is what we do on this, you could say, individual level. This first understanding of, of dependent ori- origination and also emptiness, interdependence. And the second understanding, bringing it to the dynamics of dukkha. I think we can also bring this understanding of emptiness. There's not a thing there, a fixed entity. Just processes. This movement from independence to interdependence around the the context, the dynamics of suffering, but on a collective level, not only on an individual level. Because we we can have this the sense of here I am, this independent being with certain issues, anxiety, depression, judgment, fearful. And that frame, I want to say, can be really helpful. But there's another frame of this interdependence of how all this arises on a systemic level. Wow, these are these, there are these historical processes coursing through this heart and this mind and this body and societal processes that in this moment as I'm speaking to you course through this heart and this mind and this body that give rise to all kinds of unskillful unskillful habits of this heart and mind based on dukkha, based on ignorance in particular. Whether it be these systems we find in the society around us, such as consumerism, right? This consumer culture has given rise, given rise to these hearts and minds and how they see the world. And how, as a result, we relate to the environment. The harm that arises to the environment of being within this system of these historical processes and these societal processes. The harm that comes to the environment and to the earth herself. It's been so important for me to see this heart and mind in that way. Oh, it's been influenced by these processes. I'm not independent of them. Because so it can be so easy to think that that's something that's happening out there. I'm a good person. I know about that stuff. Just that thought is a kind of ignorance. As Gandhi says, we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, these tendencies in the world could also change. Historical dynamics, societal dynamics around gender, of who is valued and not valued, or around age, 
of who gets valued and not valued, or around skin color. We're, we're but the mirror of the world. We but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. As James Baldwin put it in his this writing he, he entitled, uh, Letter to My Nephew. He said, they are in effect trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They are in effect trapped in a history which they do not understand and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. So here in this sentence, this, this they refers to people like me, white folks. He's speaking to white folks who have this still navigating racial ignorance. And the bind that happens from that. The bind of being trapped in a history. Until we understand it, we can't be released from it. And that I, I think we could take these words and to expand it to all of the areas of ignorance that play out in these hearts and minds, whether it be around the environment or around class or around gender. Right? However your mind is conditioned around those. Right? We are in effect trapped in these histories which, which we do not understand. And until we understand them, we cannot be released from them. And for me, one part of this understanding is seeing these minds and these dynamics with mindfulness. Hearing the underlying flow of experience to get to know it, because when I know it, I'm not as hooked by it. What a great gift to give to our communities and society to see these dynamics coursing through these minds and bodies. These minds are dependently originated. We're not static fixed entities. This is one of the reasons we tried to prime with some of the homework, right? like around Ruth King's article of being mindful of race or these articles around getting a sense of the cultural views that we bring to practice, like Linda Human's article, New Way Forward or David McMahon's Context Matters to begin to, to undo, to begin to see these dynamics. Because it's only through seeing these historical processes and these cultural processes that are based, you could say, on, on the grip, on reactivity, that shapes these hearts and minds that we can become free of them, to allow for a different society, to allow for a different future.
not independent, interdependent, not things, processes. And I think on this level, it shows how our understanding of dependent origination, our understanding, therefore, of emptiness is inevitably intertwined with practice, not only for ourselves, but for others, for the whole world. Just like that quote that Don began us off with on that first evening of understanding this ethical way of being in the world. wise person of great wisdom. As the Buddha said, a wise person of great wisdom, when they think, they think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. So may our exploration of dependent origination, our exploration of emptiness on this retreat, lead, lead to great wisdom for the benefit of, of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a, a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.